Hello and welcome to UK Column. Uh, joining me today, uh, we have Alan Miller from the Together Declaration. Is it the Together Je Declaration, Alan, or is it just these days known as Together? Hi, Mike. It's known as Together. I mean, we're an association. Uh, the Declaration was one, was the, as many people know, was the Declaration of the launch. Uh, but uh, it's an association uh, and we're known yeah, widely as Together. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to the program. And uh, I suppose to begin, we should just get uh, some background from you about how you got to this place. I mean, obviously, COVID played a large part of that. But uh, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit of the history of how you got here. Yeah. I mean, what happened with COVID was the, the reason Together was formed, and I was one of the co-founders. Uh, my background has been in events. Uh, for like three decades, I actually started off doing acid house parties, weirdly, uh, around the world. And it was something that was very exciting because I felt it changed a lot of things in Britain and internationally. Uh, and <clears throat> then I went into hospitality in a kind of, in you know, uh, across the board. So I was managing artists and we were putting on events and we developed, we kind of went into an old brewery that are very run down area in East London and we helped transform it and turn it into a kind of music and film or fashion centre and all of that. And then I left that after about 20 years because we were getting immense pressure from local councils and police to close, basically closing us down, making it impossible. And it was through that that I saw a lot of the measures on the private and public sphere, what was going on with think tanks talking about the public as though we we're vectors of all terrible things, antisocial behavior, crime, and really we regenerated areas and developed them. But uh, so I went on to launch uh, a co-found and uh, be a chair of something called the Nighttime Industry Association, which was to champion uh, our you know, nighttime economy. And it was very successful for six, seven years. Uh, around the world, as well as Britain, I talked internationally about how we can develop cities, towns, and work together with kind of first responders and everything, not to be treated like we're criminals, but actually to transform the landscape and help develop culture and jobs and employment uh, until lockdowns came. <laughs> and we'd sort of been speaking to the government and others before the mayors and all that kind of thing. I'd helped get people uh, in councils and others to really understand things. We were, we talked to the Home Office and others, and we always said, look, the police and the councillors, they would need to be at the desk with us. Uh, it, it, we're seen as antagonists, but actually we're all part of, uh, you know, the local and, and national public, and we should be working together. And what happened was that when lockdowns came, all those shutters came crashing down, and people said, well, you would say all that, wouldn't you, because you just want to make money from it. And uh, I started working with different people, talking to them. You know, if we remember back then, without taking up too much time, I mean, it's just mad to reflect back on it. But, um, you know, the, the public square was sort of extinguished somewhat and it was all online and we, people were talking to each other. And through asking questions and challenging things, I'd set up a thing with, some, with over a thousand venues called Open For All to say that we wouldn't have vaccine passports, we wouldn't ask for them at venues. And there was quite a split amongst different people, but these were brave ones who didn't mind because we should remember that licensing officers and the councils and all that, they can take your license away at any moment. And some people who really disagreed with us were very nasty, trying to get people cancelled and all of that. But people were brave and they stood up. And I did that initiative, but also it was clear that we had to kind of go beyond just hospitality but link with people from education, nonprofits, religious people, everyone who had concerns morally, ethically with 
the measures that were being taken, shutting down parliament, imposing lockdowns, censorship, all these, which now people are all riding back on and saying, oh, well, we didn't really want to do or we didn't do it as much. But at the time, it was a really like nice environment. And so that led to uh, on what Boris Johnson so faithfully called Freedom Day, his announcement there'd be vaccine passports as well. For us to kind of get together, we got originally, uh, we got about 150 people in a room who were all being quite vocal in challenging things, campaigners, lawyers, educationalists, people from all different sectors. Uh, and we kind of came up with a few key principles. And, and this is the thing that is really important. I mean, a lot of people came from different walks of life. Some had been kind of ardent conservatives or still were. Some had been from sort of a more left-wing background. Some were completely independent. Many were very suspicious of the whole political process, a whole range of different people. And we said, look, we're not necessarily going to agree on everything, but we can have principles that unite us uh, and that we can argue about that were based on liberties and privacy and freedoms and autonomy. And so that led to what was the Together Declaration uh, and uh, the forming of Together and to really then put the public and our needs and our interests at the front of things, not sort of technocrats or others who would do things to us. Okay, look, I'd like to, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier in that uh, and, and the, uh, the brewery um, and that project and the fact that you were already under pressure from councils and the police and so on at that time. Because um, although lockdown was the thing that really hit people over the head with a sledgehammer, um, this was something that some demographics, shall we say, were experiencing. This type of attitude was something some, that some demographics were experiencing for quite some time before that. So, so just tell us about the, the the regime that you were operating under, and and compare that with what that became then with respect to lockdown. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's a really good point. I mean, the thing is that. <clears throat> It became really apparent, but I didn't understand at the time. I was like, okay, these, you know, it's like the local, they got a new lot of licensing officers. The council, it's like, oh, they're being like, oh, Alan's gobby, we give him a bit of pressure. And you, f you experience everything very personally. When you're licensed premises, you're constantly on a uh, knife's edge of having that license taken away and you're under pressure. And he, it was so many different things. There were measures that were being imposed, like, you know, there was the introduction of all sorts of things, additional security being demanded, metal detectors, searches, saying we have to, you know, do all sorts of measures. Uh, what introduced ID? I mean, this is one of the areas where ID, uh, were, you know, was being uh, brought in uh, and all sorts of things. And you know, bear in mind, my experience had been that I, uh, I grew up in the 80s. You know, I used to joke with some of the police later on that it was like Friday fight night and how well behaved everyone is these days in comparison. But like Acid House Parties was also the antithesis of all of that restrictive regime. It was about a freedom, a liberating sense of things. It sort of challenged a lot of the ideas around that had been, you know, like a lot of things, a lot of that violence, a lot of racism, all sorts of things, right? And people came together. It was a youthful thing. So I was increasingly concerned about what was being demanded. And I didn't quite understand it at first. But what basically in a nutshell happened was it was a perfect storm. So in policy areas and think tanks. And actually in the last 25, 30 years, the invasion of the uh, public space or the, the, the reduction of public space by private uh, operators, by, by busybodies, by security companies, by big corporations, increasingly saying, you can't sit here, you can't film that, 
You can't walk there unless you're consuming. You know, who are you? None of these have any real uh, rights to do that. We as the public should have the ability to go where we want, do what we want, providing there isn't a suspicion we're causing a crime or in the act of a crime. There should be no reason to do it. But we increasingly saw these things, everything from sort of nudge kind of furniture to stop homelessness, or a range of things which weren't really a tackling of the core issues, but were much more about restricting public space. And within that, there are all sorts of debates about antisocial behaviour and all of that. Now, look, we know like, everyone can see antisocial behaviour when they, they know it, when they see it, right? But what was, ha- what was happening in our arena is, I'll give you it's a mad example, but it's worth n- looking at the absurdity of these things because often tyranny can come in and meet uh, through absurd things. My mate was actually doing a documentary and he'd got a, a little nod that, that Scotland Yard and all that was saying the highest crime point in London was at the Vibe Bar, outside the Vibe, was the Vibe Bar. And I was like, that's nuts. How's that possible, right? How is it possible that, that the police think that the highest crime in London is at the Vibe Bar? And what happened was this, the end of judgment policing and the increasing of crime sort of um, stats-based policing. And when people lose a mobile phone, they report it to the insurers. And then the insurers reference it as a crime. And it goes, and often they might be drunk or they forgot it or whatever. And a lot of people, we had a lot of people, we had thousands of people there on a weekend in the courtyard. People would lose a phone, report it, go on the insurance thing. And the borough commander would get these stats on the following week. And they'd be like, right, this is a huge crime spike, huge crime spike. Now, those things are beginning to change because we did a lot of work to educate the police and to say, look, is that really a crime? Is this where your attention should be? But not before they plundered and shut down a lot of licensed uh, events. And actually, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe said, well, you might make money from it, councils and everyone, but if you want to reduce crime, then uh, 50% of venues should go. And what he was really saying was he was feeling the pressure of making the police uh, numbers balance. So they were being asked to deal with paedophilia and cybercrime and terrorism. And uh, by the way, we're going to cut 40% of your resource. And so they went, well, look, this is an area where we've got to like please some of this at nighttime and all that. And there's a lot of overtime, but we can get rid of that. If we can make them have loads of their own security, private security forces, right, on the street. This is an issue, right? Mm. It's not okay that they're not like at least democratically accountable. Um, I know people that would love to have all private policing force. I was always it sat very uneasily with me. Right, I'm like you, you, you're getting us to have 20, 30 security. Not only can we not afford that, but there's all sorts of implications from civil liberties point of view about having all these private security forces everywhere. But the police were just obsessed, like they've done with shutting down police stations, with numbers. Right now, all this happens uh, with the discussion, and this is the core thing that the public people are mad, bad and dangerous. And actually, back to the gin laws, to the defence of the Realm Act, it was always about working people, the working people being unfit for purpose. You have to fight the Hun or, you know, the, the idea that we were just kind of drinking our way into oblivion and that we're not to be trusted. And these measures were all imposed around the health and safety agenda and around the kind of idea that we're all performing illegal activities. And the irony of it all was, and we saw this later on in the work we started doing, we're showing people like in Scotland when they shut down uh, the arches and others, we said like, you know, the problem is you think that this is going to help, but you're now, when you shut down licensed premises, you've actually got control over them. Ironically, you're saying they're out of control. And what happened was exactly that in Glasgow and elsewhere. Police, people didn't want to talk to the police. 
Then what happened is people did all sorts of events in forests and in rooms and houses and all that, not licensed, no measures, no security. And lo and behold, they had all sorts of issues. There were some stabbings. There were some people doing ODing and all. And they were getting called all over the place, uh, all over the place. It was exactly the opposite thing that they wanted. My point being, without laboring the whole thing about that particular sector, was that the discussion that, that permeated everything in the policy talk was that we are mad, bad and dangerous. The public are not to be trusted. We should have limits and restrictions and nudges and measures, surveillance, like ID, controls. And I was like, wow, this is what they think about the public. And there's some people like the Manifesto Club and all that that I really respected that had written quite a lot on things like um, you're not allowed to give flyers out. What about busking? Why are all our public spaces being eroded? And, uh, you know, to be fair, like some, you know, the mayor's office at London at the time and all that did listen to some of those things. And they, you know, but they made the point to us, we're mad point. This is when I was still doing the NTIA. They're like, well, we've said that busking's okay now, but the police are still arresting people. So you, I was looking at them going, this is all nuts, right? You, you, you've got other issues and you're suffocating one of the most dynamic, exciting uh, areas. And we were giving them examples of like Bergheim in Germany, Berlin, techno tourism, showing them things like what happens in Vegas or Waigoa and Ibiza and other places like Nashville were sort of destination spots and how we can rejuvenate our cities and streets, right? We don't do shipbuilding anymore. We don't do coal mining. But this is a real asset in Britain. We've got a lot of creative entrepreneurs. We have technical people. We have DJs. We have fashion. All that stuff can happen there. And yet there's this narrative that we like really it's like everyone like having tear ups like they were in the 80s. So we help re re-educate and reposition the situation with licensing officers, with counsellors, and we we put a task force together that we did with the mayor of London and others at the time in Manchester. We helped create the role of a nighttime ambassadors. Unfortunately, some of them became really weaponized and politicized by the people against our advice. Um, but the idea being that you can get much better if you trust the public and you engage with them and you see we're all part of the community with residents, with others, and we work together. We've got an interest. None of the people that ran these places, operators, wanted issues, right? And the idea that you then hold a business accountable because someone does something was also an egregious attack on English law, right? We're, we're individually responsible for our behavior. So all this was going on. So when I saw what was going on with COVID, I was like, right. This is, you know, obviously, like every, I'm sure like most people, it shocked me enormously, right? But it was like that on steroids, the whole discussion about, you know, everything about kids playing snowballs out in the playground, put, like taping things off, not walking together outside. I'm like, this whole idea, and I get that, you know, look, if there's a black death or something, I, I, I'm not like, obviously, I think most people are not stupid, right? People understand that there are measures that would need to be taken but actually lots of people started taking measures themselves partly because of the way things were presented to them but i just got very nervous and then increasingly i saw that much of that policy discussion about the public being dirty and bad and dangerous was really elevated to a whole new uh, perspective mm. Thank you for that, because that's, uh, this is really important to, to show that this is not something that just came out of the blue. It was something that was happening already to some degree. But look, uh, something else that you said in that first segment uh, was uh, the, about Together and the fact that uh, Together is bringing people uh, to, together uh, from 
a wide range of political positions right across the, the so-called political spectrum. And, and that seems like a really important thing to me. So uh, obviously people who view themselves as being on the left or on the right tend to have quite entrenched views on certain ideological issues. How do you go about getting past that problem? I'm not sure we always do get past it, Mike, but um, what I, so the point that we keep trying to make is that um, firstly, uh, we're fellow citizens and we have a lot in common and we generally probably have many of the same hopes and aspirations, right? I mean, people might love Hayek or they might love uh, uh, Keynes or they might, you know, they like, like someone even left of Keynes and if you can get someone right of Hayek, right? They, so they might, but generally we have very similar wants. We all want a bit better for at least certainly for our kids than we do for ourselves. And people want to have a sense of, um, you know, society going about things. So what we try and do is remind everyone that we're fellow citizens and we're not have to be like at, at, you know, calling people names, saying they're all stupid, blah, blah. But how do we have ideas that can win over those to the idea that we can challenge things. Now, obviously, in the middle of what was going on with COVID, what people were saying is, you're just irresponsible. You're going to be killing people. This is not okay. But we made the point about principles. However bad it is, however bad things are, there are some fundamental rudimentary principles. And a principle can only exist if it exists. You can't say, I want free speech, but not for those people. You either have free speech or you don't, right? So you either say we have everyone allowed to say all the things they say and we don't like a lot of them and that's fine. That's Voltaire's position and we'll argue against them, we'll criticise them. We might even ridicule them, but we don't ban them. Or no one has free speech, right? And it's the same thing with bodily autonomy. Um, you know, it was a big question around the vaccine at the time. There were many people who had all different views about it. But our point was people have to be able to make up their own mind, which is obviously very difficult when people are trying to get information that's all very new and everything. But we made the point that nothing should be forced or imposed. So certainly not a mandate. You shouldn't have to show any medical information to anyone, at least not to participate in daily life. Uh, and children uh, didn't need this procedure. Uh, the school shouldn't have been locked down. We had a few key fundamental things that we could agree on uh, and that, uh, no lockdowns was a fundamental one, right? And um, so what we were able to do is unite around these ideas, even though some people really disagree with one another and some people in together on the steering group and the board don't agree on things. And I think it's our strength, not our weakness, but it's very difficult. And it's also very difficult when you're trying to bring people together and work together and there's all sorts of concerns and people are suspicious understandably why wouldn't you be after the three years of madness and things that people would have seen before as well you know and about in motives and what what incentivizes people we live in a world where we don't really think most people don't think they can change that much and often people i think people elevate our opposition i think they're weak authoritarians and and in some ways that's more frightening but actually that's why they love the globalist thing so much that's why they love uh getting involved in uh, external globalist institutions rather than being accountable on the coalface here and taking responsibility. And actually, I think that it's messy business, right? Because that, you know, you say that a lot of people might have had fixed ideas around the right and the left. Often, I think now it's more like out of tradition. If you meet people that vote Labour, a lot of them, unless they're the new metropolitan type, a lot of them 
uh, will do it because they have always done it or some are, and many more are, are homeless now. And the exciting thing, and I think some of these things we saw with like with Remain and Brexit and all of that, but now we've certainly seen it. Uh, we saw it during the lockdowns. We saw all those people come out. We'd never been on marches or political at all. And also a lot more people who are just pretty disgusted and disillusioned. Now that doesn't necessarily translate into an active relationship, right? But I think that there's a lot of people who who are uh, look back and, and the opportunity I think that's there, even though it's difficult, is to say, look, you you know there are different views on different things, but if you value privacy, if you value the ability for us not to have surveillance and have a social credit system, you might come from the left on that position and you might come from a kind of more libertarian but it doesn't matter really if you think that democracy is important and this is the other thing a lot of people will laugh at that a lot of people in, the, in what people call the freedom movement will go oh democracy <laughs> but actually there are a whole load of things out there around the world that are not democratic and where we have these conversations you get a knock on the door you get taken down and we need to bolster it and improve it and expand it, but still retain those elements in it. And there's, so there's a, a lot of core fundamentals. Would have been the thing that everyone agreed on 30 years ago, right? Labour and Conservatives would have been thrashing out arguments on the economy. Socialists and others more and the more right would have said different things. But everyone would have, well, most people would have agreed on certain core things, the separation between the state and our private lives, the, the idea of freedom of speech, more or less, mostly, most people would have subscribed to that. You know, all these things. Now we're in this battle to, I think, to to retain and protect some core elements of gains that have been won in the last 300 years only. I mean, prior to that, it never existed. If you go to much of the world, they don't exist still. And people are like, we don't need that. We can make money. You don't need to have those things. And so it is difficult, but also, uh, I think that um, it gives us a strength, but, you know, it's challenging. And it's also, you can't fall back on on platitudes. Like, it's, things you've got, it's difficult, right? We, and we're all working things out as we go along. And if only the government and the opposition all that had been more honest about all of that, right? If only they were honest about things, but we don't know, we're not sure. What are you, th- you know, engaging people, honestly, and that's what we're calling for, much more public engagement and transparency, and honesty and stop blagging, nudging and PR spinning, right? That because that's how people respect you, right? If you if you sort of like are honest about the situation. So it is tricky, but also I think it gives us an advantage. But there's also challenges, right? Because as we've seen, there are issues that come along as well that people really disagree on. And there are a number of them, right? Um and uh, together, we're focused on on the principles and saying this is what we're working on and what we're doing. And and if you agree with those principles, we can discuss those things about this part or that part. And we can do it civilly. This is the other way, right? The whole thing about civil discussion and debate with people that we don't agree with, that we really, really disagree with. We don't have enough of it. We don't have attempts to shed light on it, why people are saying those things. And it's a problem because people are retreating into that identity or I'm this view. And they're that view. And then they, they project this idea that this is with always an evil view. I have to get you cancelled rather than say, well, hold on a minute. We're all here together. We, you know, we all want similar things. How do we get there? How do we best get there? I think that's a very good point. Uh, the, the, the preponderance of people to retreat, as you say, into identity is really dangerous because it, it, it really puts people in a box and, and, and there's no discussion to be had. But I want to come back on to something you said earlier. And... Um, uh, 
get an idea of what uh, Together's approach is to, to uh, encouraging people to get involved, because of course there's quite a lot of pessimism out there about getting involved. And you talked about you know people within the truth movement, if that's what it is, uh, um, talking about uh, you know no point getting involved in democracy and this kind of thing. How do you get over this this pessimism that a lot of people have? And and it's really, uh, to my mind, it's people rev- not recognizing their own ability to 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 actually create the world that they want to live in and and or maybe it's maybe it's just fear i don't know i think it's definitely part of the former it's it's a sense that i think there's a sense historically and we shouldn't underestimate this and it is important and 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 it's important it is really important that when people try to change things things in the modern period have often become very brutal and sometimes they've got worse not better so, you know, if you think about the past, you think about things like the English Civil War, the English Revolution, the glory, you know, they had the whole thing, although some of it was very bloody, you had Parliament created, you had Cromwell, you had all these things. Uh, then you have uh, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, they're all, even though it was bloody, you had the reign of terror after, you have the guillotine, yeah, but you have a sense of the French Republic, you have a sense of liberty, fraternity, democracy. You have a sense of the constitution, right? Free speech, the first time that we hold these truths uh, to be fundamental and the sense that at least formally everyone could be free. And it didn't happen for a long time, as we know, until the civil rights and even maybe even now. But that idea was there for the first time in humanity. Now, that changes with the Russian revolution, right? Where you have, it, it is not that, right? What ends up happening is a really, you have on the one hand, you have Nazism and fascism, and then you have Stalinism. And I think that many people drew the conclusion that humanity's attempt to change things will inevitably, is that, is that adage, you know, power and absolute power and corruption and the whole idea that anything people try and do will turn into a nightmare dystopian terror, right? And look, let you know, let's call it what it is, millions were annihilated and it was a terrible, there were many terrible things that happened. Now then that question then comes to us, well, does that mean then that we cannot do anything or that we just leave it up to a bunch of people who just think that the way to do things is increasingly have a few people who look and sound like each other who've who've been to Oxbridge and all that or are technocrats just, just cracking on, right? And doing various measures that impose things on us, right? And they're the questions. And the question I think about what people think they can do, how much of an impact they think they can have, we're enormously strong, right? I mean, you only have to go to a football match to get a sense of anything. And, uh, and then those lockdown, anti-lockdown demos that people went on, I think people saw some of that. But also there was a sense that wasn't reported. It wasn't seen how much change it's making. But that's why together we're really keen on, on uh, being honest, but also saying these are wins, right? Now, you know, if you think about the vaccine mandate, clearly the government was not ready to lose that amount of medical staff, right? That was a, also a pragmatic decision they had there. But it was also the case that out of all the countries around the world, we challenged it and fought it really, really strongly, all of us, everyone together, NHS 100 together, frontline staff, you guys, everyone, lots of people challenged it. But, but People, friends of ours in Canada and Australia and all that said, you're never going to stop that, but good luck, but we just can't see you. Do-. The point is, it got stopped. And there was a lot of challenge and pushback and the state and others. And, you you know, we should remember that even members of the Conservative Party and Labour, other people were challenging it. Some were courageous, many were not. But that went down as a marker. And the, front, the frontline NHS staff were saying, this is 
preposterous and outrageous and we've done this for a year and why should we have to do this now after we risked everything and you were clapping us and that went out and was disseminated to the public and we've got on mainstream media with all of that those things are really important and they demonstrate that you can have an impact now we should also not try and blag one another and say the impact is more you know, you know people say we've got millions and we'll do it well it there's a recognition you nailed it mike right there's a real sense in which people don't have a sense of their own power because if we all did we make the world every day right we just go right wallop but that that has got to be based on some sensible recognitions that some of the things we've got shouldn't just be dispensed with. That's one of the French Revolution moments, right? Do you, you know, do you want to retain and also certainly in later revolutions, you don't just want to destroy, you absolutely don't want to destroy the best of what's been done. What we want to do is be able to ensure that we prop up the best and maintain and enhance it and say, can we have as much democracy for everyone as possible? And can we also have responsibility and judgment and, you know, all of those things? And we can discuss openly how we want to do things and can we have control over our destiny many people think all of that's just a spurious notion now right it's a, and it's interesting because it's a hodgepodge of relativist ideas of deconstruction ideas of the idea that we're all just mad and insane and shit or all at risk and vulnerable therapeutized notions all these things have uh, assembled uh, in terms of thinking uh, and there's very little sense of our own agency and our own capabilities. And you think about every discussion now in contemporary life, it's about how we need interventions or how we can't cope or how everyone's stressed or how we need like third parties to do things to us, rather than a sense that, you know what? I mean, it's a bit of a caricature, the stoic idea of British people. But actually, right, stoicism and strength and being robust and having fortitude and perseverance and like working together, solidarity and all those things, their things are really important. And we do try and champion them. And that's why in every campaign, we get people to go out on the street to talk in their local areas. We have local, regional, national ambassadors. We've just been uh, in uh, Wellingborough and Kingswood and we're on our way to Rochdale to encourage people to vote. Uh, we most generally say go out and vote and ask these questions about freedom and whoever answers them to the best, then you should vote for them. We encourage people to stand independently if they want to do that as well. But the point is that uh, what we're really trying to do is build a, a new public, build a public that uh, puts pressure on everyone because people say, well, why don't you stand? Or what if ever, if they all, all the freedom people just got together? The thing that we're lacking is the thing that keeps everyone honest, which is a really strong public, right? That says, no, we're not having that. And we think that if we can have some more of that, because one of the problems is you go in and then you've got the civil servants saying this and the Department of Ministry of Defence saying that and the Ministry of And all of a sudden, you see it with a lot of people. You say they say one thing and they go in and they're like doing all these other things. And you're like, what happened there? And I think partly there's a kind of self-servingness of that. But there's an issue, right, which is unless you can say that I've got the public, we've got the public, the public is saying this and there's no point. You, I don't care about what's happened before. This is what it is. And, and the public can put pressure and they can change, they can get things changed. We can get things changed real fast, right? So as a small example of some of that, we got low traffic neighborhoods, investigation into that and inquiry. Now, no inquiries, the COVID inquiry is not worth some of the stuff it's written on, but we got the prime minister to do that. We got the Department of Trans Transport and Mark Harper to draw back on funding livable streets and active travel. We, I mean, 
together and many other people together all campaigning around that letter writing, uh, protesting, doing things up and down the country in Bath and Bristol and Cambridge and Edinburgh. We've got um, the question of net zero with other people, of course, but being rode back on and discussed, right, to have a proper cost-benefit analysis and an evaluation of what happened in Uxbridge and other areas around that, around ULES. Um, all of these things, I think it's really important to say, look, we can have an impact. Let's not try and pretend it's a bigger impact than it is, but let's not undersell ourselves. And let's remind others that the more, if you get your friends, neighbours, colleagues, workmates, all that in, family, and we have these discussions, we can have even more of an impact, right? Because in the end, it's up to us. And councillors are often voted in by only by a few hundred people. Mm. And we know that many people aren't even turning out to elections now. And I think that's why it's really essential, because the danger is, there is a danger in people just becoming completely cynical about democracy and, and everything. Because you go, well, what are you going to say, right? Well, I know I'm right, so we're, I'm just going to do it the way I see it. I mean, that ends up becoming really dangerous, right? I think, and there, there is a sentiment among some people to do that. I would warn against it. I'd say that we need to be able to convince citizens, our fellow people, of um, why these ideas are right and why they should stand behind them. Because if we can't, it's a dangerous slope if you just start asserting those things, saying, well, it's just got to get done because these people are too stupid or we're never going to get there doing it. It's like what they're doing with all their things, the nudge and the impositions and the restrictions and the surveillance. So that's, yeah, that's really at the core of what we're trying to do. Um, and it takes a little longer, you know. <laughs> it's not just like, oh, can you stand in an election? It's, it's a process, I think, of building blocks. Yes. So, um, you know, you, you talked about people potentially standing. Uh, there's going to be a general election soon. I understand that it's probably going to be called at some point during March and it's probably going to be in May. Uh, so there's going to be an opportunity for people to stand. And, uh, you know, many, many people will say, well, that's a waste of time. But it seems to me that that's a perfect opportunity because uh, to, to start getting a message out. If, if people stand, it gives an opportunity for, to get a campaign going and these kinds of things. And it's just about a matter of having uh, a bit of uh, enthusiasm and, and uh, getting getting a group of people together to, to help help you stand. I think it's a, it would be a fantastic thing for lots of people to do. You're right. I think you're right about that. And if people want to stand, they should. The more people that can participate and uh, uh, have their voice heard, then there's going to be a bit of an initiative. We're going to encourage people to do that as local councillors, for sure, uh, and as independents across the board. Um, so, you know, and we're not, but we don't, we, again, we're not saying that's the only thing. That comes every few years and you should still do things all the way, campaigning, protests, letter writing, you know, local groups. But Yes, I agree with you, Mike. People should go for it if they if they want to uh, have an impact. About ten years, at least ten years ago, uh, there was an organisation uh, going about calling themselves the People's Public Trust, and they may they may still exist. I don't know in a, in a small way, but but all they were doing at that time is um, going to council meetings. Uh, they were putting on a high vis jacket, and they were going to council meetings, sitting down in the public gallery, and watching the council proceedings and what they discovered very quickly was that uh, items were being dropped off the uh, council agenda because certain things the council didn't really want to talk about in front of uh, people with notebooks and 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 people who were taking contemporaneous notes and so on um, and you know one of the things that we hear often is this idea that uh, you know this the agenda is that zero whatever these types of policy agendas are moving on so quickly that we're running out of time but that's just a very simple example of something that people were doing at that stage that was actually helping to make time 
by preventing the council from proceeding with their with their work. And uh, so my point here is it the steps that need to be taken in order to at least uh, slow things down to give ourselves time to to come up with better ways to campaign or whatever. The steps that we need to take are pretty simple. Yeah, I think the thing is, you know, we've just had a report out. We did it with Ben Pyle. Uh, I think you had him on the show as well. But basically, um, uh, looking at a few green billionaires that have helped hijacked the uh, local democracy and national democracy around the net zero agenda. And what we're calling for is uh, get MPs and others to sign a pledge, but actually for transparency and looking at costs and benefits. Let's put it to the public. If you think that the imminent threat is so important that we should have a reduction in pay and jobs and travel and movement, and we should have an increase in surveillance and fines. And if you think that's acceptable, let's see what the public thinks, right? And then and have it out, flash it out, say it as it is. And on all these measures, like low traffic neighbourhoods, the LTN schemes, like clean air zones, like um, the ultra low emission zone and low emission zones in what's now pushing out Scotland and the north, uh, and 15 and 20 minute cities or neighborhoods that seem to be able to have lots of fines and concrete, but don't ever want to provide the services they keep talking about being in the 15 minutes. Um, it, the more that people can actively have a relationship to that, they can, and people do different things. You can write a letter, you can phone up someone, you can get in your local press, you can get some neighbors all involved, you can get petitions signed, you can. Uh, organized protests you can rally you can do a march uh you can do a sitting you could do a cycle round you could do all sorts of things right and we work with lots of people in lots of different ways and i think that active relationship and reminding the councillors that only a few hundred usually get them in when they vote and now the pressure's on i mean we just in oxford we supported someone who stood independently and in the end and it was quite soon he only had about three weeks and labor brought in everyone. They brought in about 50 activists. They had Annalise Dodds. They knocked on low stores. They did a good ground campaign, but they only won by about 100 votes. They, they got 1,160. He got 1,060, uh, David. And we basically uh, supported uh, him in that uh, campaign because it was pretty much like one or two issues all around low traffic neighbourhoods, right? And it was clear cut, right? It wasn't, there was no confusion about what it could be. And my point is that we can have a really big impact across the board. And even if someone is a little cynical about it, see, one of the things about cynicism is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm. It's tautological. You say, well, you can't really do anything, nothing. And in the, the very act of saying that, the nature of saying it, sort of reinforces the position that you got. It's the position of weakness and, uh, and defeat before you start out. If you say, well, in good faith, you know, I think that we can have an impact. Well, how did they, anything? How did people below the age of 30, how did non-landowners get the right to vote? They didn't just get it given to them, right? Why was it that eight-year-olds stopped working down the mines? There's a whole litany of examples of people. Why have women got the vote? There's a whole range of things that people have done that have changed things, right? And, you know, people might think some of them weren't great, but it doesn't matter. The point is that people got them changed. And in the modern period, mainly ordinary people got them changed, right, by being brave. And I think we need to just do a bit better at history as well when we get a little despondent because there is a real sense of, and, I, you know, I get a sense that there's a caricature of, of what's going on, that there's, like, oh, these people and that it will always be this way and it can never change. And, it's, and you're like, you know, the problem is 
we've got a situation where we've got a decadent, moribund, empty set of vassals that are running things. It would be one thing if they were really strong and dynamic. You could say that in the Victorian period, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, that the British elite and establishment and the American, they knew who they were, right? I mean, I mean you only have to look of, at what, how Germany was put back together again afterwards. I mean, compare what those things in Iraq and elsewhere have been and the difference with everything, right? in terms of what was being fought for, what was being communicated, what was being implemented, infrastructure subsequently, martial plan, everything, right? There was a sense. Now, whether, wherever, wherever anyone stands on any of those things politically, there was a group of people that understood who they were and what they were doing and what, and the idea of sovereignty and all of that. And all of that, as much of that has disappeared now, you've got like, it's almost like people are in an old building and everything's been sort of uh, taken down and they don't know the lights are off and they don't know what's going on. And we've got a decision, right, which is that are we going to kind of allow more draconian measures, more limits, more restrictions? It's happening all the time, right, in our citizen streets and the online safety bill, what's happening, everything from you know end-of-life discussions in the state to um, – uh, net zero policies about how we live our daily lives and and how technology and other things are used. Are we going to allow all this to happen to us, or are we going to be in the driving seat? It's a simple question, right? And that's the question we keep asking ourselves. And and people should be honest with themselves. If they go, well, I'm just going to abandon jettison my position. Fine, but you know it's a bit rich to just complain about things if we're not going to take it upon ourselves. That Lord Kitchener thing, right? Your country needs you. It's a bit like that because together isn't going to change it for anyone, right? In and of ourselves. We're a few, you know, we have um, a few hundred thousand signatories. We have a few thousand members. We have people around. But there are millions of people in this country, and we need many more to join us, but to take it upon themselves, right, to do things. And that's really the way that we're going to get it changed. But I am very hopeful, and I believe – I also think there's no other option, right? You, this is the other thing. You go, right, well, it's the same point. What, what am I going to do? Where do I stand? It's like the Martin Luther thing. Here I stand, I can do no other, right? You put your thing up on the board and people either go with it, you, you know, you, you, got, you might get persecuted for it. But you've got to go for it because what we're talking about is too important and it's not a game, right? That's the other thing. It's not a game. We're not, you know, I don't think anyone else is doing it because we haven't got any friends. It's like we, this is really very, very fundamental to what kind of country we have. And also what we do in Britain gets seen around the world like we're seeing some of the farmers in Europe, like we saw the truckers in Canada, what we do here, what we did with the vaccine mandate, what we've done subsequently, people see that, right? And they see it with the online safety bill. They see it when the government keeps making new measures about protests and they keep you know, saying you can't have this and banning that and, and whether we overturn it or not. But they also see the things we're winning at. And so that's really important as well. Um, you said something there. You mentioned... Uh, uh the Online Safety Act and also behavioural change. And I saw a piece of video that, that you were in, I can't remember where it was you were speaking, uh, talking about the Behavioural Insights team and the nudge, the concept of nudge. Um, I'd, just, I'd just like to get your thoughts on this because, because your point, I think, was mainly that uh, you know government's not willing to have a discussion or an argument about whether something is the right thing to do or not. They're actually using applied psychology to to make sure that we accept what they're doing uh, in many cases. I mean, this is you, we, you've mentioned 
the, the country being undem and the world being undemocratic quite a number of times in this conversation, but that must be the most undemocratic approach of anything. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, we should remind ourselves that you're, you're absolutely right. You, the, the, the nudge concept came about the behavioral insights and the idea you have a behavioral insights team, and it came from the States, but the idea around consumption and how you nudge people towards a certain thing. And then that be brought into politics. So rather than thrashing out the messy debate, we saw it a bit when Keir Starmer was saying that Davos was a better place to be than Westminster. This whole idea that you want to have people going along with certain things and like floating up there, not the messy business of the demos, of the democratic discussion of arguing. And we need to be careful on our side of things as well, that we don't just go, we only want to hear things that we agree with, right? We absolutely need to get in those pubs and talk to people with views we disagree with, right? We need to hear the concerns of people in Britain, the costs of living, costs of lockdown crisis, the issues that people are facing, dealing with all these things. Uh, because it's also the case that we haven't managed to get 1 million, 5 million or 10 million people behind us. Some people seem to think that everyone, it might be that people have sympathies with some of the things we're saying, but we need a more active relationship. The thing about the nudge unit, the behavioral insights team is it's so undemocratic. It's so pernicious in the sense that we're going to purposely circumvent the democratic arena. We're purposely going to not try and convince you. We're not going to win hearts and minds. We've always known propaganda's there, particularly at a time of war, the fog of war, but, you know, and truth being the first casualty. But Throughout, you know, the, the idea that it's propaganda, of course there is, right? We've grown up. We all know that. The question is, can we argue against it? Can people see it? Are we all just, are we all automatons and robots or do we have consciousness? I, I, I believe we have consciousness. We have ability to reason. I know fear has an impact on people. So we know that the fear mongering had a big impact, lessens people's ability just to sit back and reflect on things. But the nudge unit is so disingenuous. Uh, and along with, I think, the rapid response unit and, <laughs> you know, the um, counter disinformation units, you know, these things come almost like East German kind of things in the Cold War, right? But these are all things that we've had or got currently in Britain. Uh, these uh, reflect a sense that the, 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 the they're the terrified tyrannists. The elite that are running things are so scared. They're so not in command they're so disbelieving of their own capabilities to convince people of many measures and the virtues in an argument and it's obviously a lot easier right if you say well either the eu said that or the world bank said this or who said that or whatever that you know you fill the gap you say well the, we these are the international rules we you say, well, have you haven't argued the moral position or the political position or ethical or what, why it's of benefit to us or not what we need in Britain, right, my, I think, is that we need to have a public at the heart of things with a, a plan for the next 100 years. People often talk about plans, right? The problem is I don't think we have got plans. We haven't got any of them. We need it in engineering. We need it in infrastructure. Stop toxic water being pumped into coastlines. We need to get trains to run on time, but have bullet trains potentially, right? We need to have people paid far more money and make more profits. That means productivity, right? We need to have dynamism. We need to have a sense of commitment. We need to have control over things. Whatever anyone thinks about immigration, more or less, or certain kind, we not we got to be able to control 
the border and make decisions ourselves as a sovereign nation, right? Uh, we got to be able to say what we think <laughs> openly because you can't do any of those things if you can't say what you think and communicate one another. And, you know, I, I think that the nudge unit and the behavioral insights team is an idea that you can really treat you know, start treating people like they're children or robots, but you kind of do this thing where you try and just get to another part of their brain and you don't just treat them in good faith as citizens, right? Engaged people that will make decisions. And I'm going to remind everyone that I think that although some terrible things have happened in history, that people generally are good and decent. And of course, some people do some things that aren't, but for the large part, when things go wrong or they're bad, People muck in, people help. Often the narrative is that we all do terrible things. But, you know, invariably on a daily basis in normal times or a time of crisis, most people are mucking in and helping one another. And I see this around the world. I've been lucky enough to travel and live in different places. You see it all the time, right? So I think that we've got to reassert ourselves and say this whole idea that we're the problem needs to get inverted, needs to get reversed. And put ourselves right at the front of things and say, well, these decisions we're making, we need to be making based on what do we need? What do we need in Britain? What, do, what are our interests? And we need people that are going to serve that. You know, service is important, but they serve the benefits and the interest of what we all need. Not in short termism, not in just kind of accounting measures, and certainly not in just printing lots more money and then getting us all onto a central bank digital currency, but in terms of active, creative, innovative, transformative things. That's the thing. That's why we also formed a cabinet uh, at, at together in certain key areas to argue the case uh, in, in a number of these areas, as well as having our uh, grassroots kind of people on the ground that we can, you know, in policy areas and in discussions, we can uh, aim to put the public really back front and center. On the Online Safety Act, and of course, the point about that is it's about online communications and the way that you get around that is to have face-to-face -face conversations and wouldn't it be wonderful if that was seen as actually an act of resistance? I think that, you know, there's never a substitute for meeting in person and talking in person and doing events together and uh, just being together, right? It's, it's not a, a shallow uh, statement, right? I think that we all saw that in lockdowns. We're social creatures. It's how we get meaning. It's how we have trust. It's how we have, you know, intimacy and communication and joy and life and love and all of that, right? Those things are really essential. They're paramount. And we should keep fighting the act, right? The fact that censorship has been outsourced to big tech companies abroad. You know, just because something's been passed doesn't mean it's immutable. It only takes people to say, well, that needs to go. And the majority of the public say so. That's the case. There are some tough discussions to have around it because a lot of it got blended with some of the issues around children. And there's ways to deal with that discussion, I think. But adults and democracy and shutting down our ability to speak uh, freely and communicate is should con continually be contested. And we should remind ourselves, if we get a little bit too gloomy, that ever since the idea of free speech came out, there have been contestations and challenges and it's ebbed and flowed. I mean, even like you think about you know, the founders of America and um, many of those discussions, uh, there were various people. Some people just thought that the public then were just not to be trusted and you have to limit them. You see them in the French Revolution discussions, Rousseau, Burke, others, you know, the more conservative sort of impulse to, you know, or, or an idea of Jefferson that the people can be trusted much more on free speech. 
all of these things were always being discussed. And a lot of it depends on what people think about people, right? But, but they never think about the people they know when they talk about it. They always think about an abstract idea of the people, right? Mm. So they don't, well, like, no, my friends and my neighbours and my, they're all nice. But when you, and then they go, but there's all these other nice, and, and actually, but is overstated. In terms of the, the of together itself, you you mentioned the cabinet and uh, activists on the ground. So, um, what how does how does it work in terms of what the, the campaigns that are being run and so on? Does the, does the cabinet decide which campaign campaigns are being run or what people are talking about, or is that something that uh, the the various grassroots uh, uh, groups are are able to do themselves? Yeah. Well, because we have our um, our founding principles uh, they're the things that inform everything so the questions around free speech and censorship the questions around autonomy uh and uh over bodily autonomy and autonomy generally and over um having the public at the heart of things and and freedom and privacy and our liberty and rights they're the paramount principles and what happens is that then on a range of issues like whether it's cash central bank digital currency and digital id or whether it's on social care and end-of-life care. So the cabinet members, they do some of those things. So we've just been running campaigns on end-of-life care and what's been going on. And um, we've got stuff on law and order. We've got stuff on net zero. And we have reports written and, and uh, a pledge that we get people to get their MPs and councillors to sign and ask candidates if they support it. And we get those things out there. So we have a relationship between the ideas and policy positions and press and the grassroots doing things. But obviously, lots of things happen on the ground. One of the things we found out when we were working with people with low traffic neighborhoods and all that, honestly, Mike, I go along to things and you meet people and they're brilliant. And some this is the thing. People would have different political backgrounds. And some of them were saying, you know, oh, well, we don't like Alan or we don't like Together because they thought this about the vaccines or that about the vaccine. I mean, often they don't. They've just heard things. They, they haven't actually asked us what we think. Mm. Uh, we didn't really say too much about all of that at the start. We have subsequently done things and we've done a, we've been involved in a report that went to the MHRA and Downing Street, but that was much later on. But what happens is people have these ideas or they'll, they'll make projections and we've seen them do it with various people, right? Rather than actually take up the ideas they're saying, they'll, they'll make projections and they'll say things. Um, so uh, we get... Uh, there are things that are happening on the ground and we partner and form alliances with people or we say that we want to come in and amplify and help and support you, right? We've worked with people in Oxford in that way and in Cambridge. Or we'll have people who will form and create things and we've done that with people in Bath and in Bristol. So it depends what's going on. It's about, uh, and like with some of the farming stuff now and like with drivers and truckers and uh, with parents and with carers, across the board, these are all, you know, health workers it's all a composite of the demographic and it's about getting as many people involved in a discussion uh, having a bit of an umbrella and being able to get some mainstream uh, press and and some more high profile coverage and activity we can we're not there's some people like oh, why'd you go on an msn and shit there sell out but the thing is it's where the majority of the public see things still now younger people not so much they're still they're looking you know social media and clips but that is an area that, you know, a lot of people that we want to win over <laughs> are still watching and having an impact. So we'll try and get everywhere uh, and amplify. But, um, you know, often people will contact us and they'll be like, we have members and supporters and they'll, you know, we have sort of meetings regularly. 
they'll say, we've got these thing on, can we do this and can we do that? And if it's within our principles and what we're doing, then we do that. And also sometimes people ask why we're silent on certain things. Well, because that's not within our principles. and our, I mean, uh, we're not all things to all people, right? And we're not just going to do things for clickbait or even if individuals of us think one way or another. Uh, we, we're quite clear on what we're trying to do uh, and get people to be engaged and involved in. And, you know, and it's only going to work the more people that get involved with us. Let me just ask you this. Um... Brian likes to say action conquers fear. Do you find that is the case? I do. I do. I think we can sometimes, you know, you only have to fear. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. There's an element in which thinking about thinking about things is really, really important, right? Having a plan and strategy or trying things out and having tactics. But you've got to go for it in life. And through that method of activating yourself, taking some agency, having an impact. New things will happen. Look at all the new friends that people have made in the last few years and shed maybe some of our older friends. I'm sure we've all lost friends and found new ones, right? I've met some remarkable people in these last few years. And, you know, the one silver lining about everything is that <laughs> they didn't realize they'd bring all these different people together that were quite capable. And that's exciting. And there are often people from very different backgrounds that would not have done that. And so I do think that getting involved in doing things, but think about it. And also we all need a bit of humility to say, look, there's a lot of things. There's people that we don't agree with. How can we kind of win them over? How, have we got the ideas that are compelling? Are we right? Can we say we don't know? I mean, you know, often sometimes with some of the people that are our friends, I'm like, I just don't know about these things. And people are like, oh, well, yeah, come on, you must. And it's like, well, some of it's not so clear to me, right? I mean, and it's okay. It could be clear to you. I say to people I work with, you think it's happening because of this reason. I might think it's happening because of that. Actually, though, the solution is that we all in this country take a stand and impose ourselves because whatever the reason why it's happening, we can stop it and change it if we do it together. And that's really powerful, right? That bit is really essential. Alan, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us today. That's been a fascinating conversation. I hope we can do this again at some point. Uh, but yeah, we, me too. yeah, brilliant. Thank you. 